As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. It was only about a week ago, chatting with a good friend of mine about what a crazy year 2022 had been geopolitically, and that once again, very few could have predicted all of the changes we'd see over the space of just 365 days. In just one year, the US policy on China went from semi-effective tariffs to targeted sanctions that will cripple China's supercomputing capabilities for decades to come. Kazakhstan threw out the remnants of a 30-year dictatorship, and an unexpected pink tide swept over Latin America. The British pound almost collapsed, and the regime in Iran went from a continuing trend of increasingly hardline governments to one that is now talking about doing away with the morality police. But without a doubt, the biggest story of 2022, the story that shaped the year, was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right now in front of me, I have articles from January of 2022, just 12 months ago, suggesting NATO is an irrelevant organization, a remnant of the past, that the Europeans would be increasing their gas consumption from Russia, with multiple analysts touting glowing reports of battlefield victories in Syria, diplomatic wins in Kazakhstan and the Caucasus, and financial wins with Nord Stream expansions. And even though the Biden administration warned of Russia's plans to invade Ukraine, a huge sector of the Russia-watching community still touted that Putin's moves were probably a bluff. And then, on February 24th, he did it. Putin crossed the line of control and began an invasion to seize the rest of Ukraine. And in the space of just a few days, predictions went from whether Russia would stop at the Dnieper River or continue on right to the Polish border, or if Kiev would fall within one week or two. But as quickly as it started, it began to turn. The battle for Ukraine quickly bogged down, with Russia being forced to abandon any grand plans they had for the country. And instead, here we are nearly 11 months later, seeing battles that in some places on the ground aren't that far from the muddy pits of the First World War. So why did so much of the Russian analytic community get it wrong? Well, the reason why is probably because of Syria. Now, I'm not here to target anyone or call anyone out, but most Russian experts who failed to predict the outcome of the invasion of Ukraine fell into one of two categories. Those who read the reports on Syria and those who understood them. Some of the analysts took on the reports of blistering Russian victories in the Syrian battle space, with the Russian Air Force smashing their targets and cities surrendering in a matter of days rather than weeks or months. In fact, on the surface, some of these operations, particularly in the later years of the Syrian war, were arguably better run than many of the American operations in Afghanistan or even Syria itself. On the surface, it looked like a top-tier military, and one that scaled up could probably knock over Kiev in a week or two. The other group, though, the ones that peered under the surface saw that Russia was fighting an enemy with little to no anti-air defenses, an enemy with no money, an enemy with no coherent command or ideals to unite them, and saw that the Russian soldiers carrying out these operations weren't regular Russian soldiers, but in fact were some of Russia's better units. In which case, of course they were winning. These analysts understood that the Russian army of January 2022 
wasn't the juggernaut of 1945, but the top-heavy mess of 1939. Many of these analysts could see that even on easy mode, against an enemy like the Syrian rebel forces, Russia was really stretching itself. So when we were told that Russia was about to invade Ukraine, a lot of people immediately dismissed it, seeing almost immediately that Putin hadn't built up nearly enough supplies for that sort of an operation, knowing even at a cursory glance that a large-scale operation many times larger than Syria would be an almost guaranteed catastrophe for Russia. We got the data and we kept doing the math. And the math kept telling us that the war wouldn't be a blistering week-long campaign with the Ukrainians surrender without a fight like in 2014, but instead that it was going to be a nasty, all-consuming street fight that would likely drag on for months or years and put the Russian army under a stress test it hadn't experienced in decades. The people that understood the Russian operations in Syria and the actual tensile strength of the Russian army could see a lot of this coming. And their math was correct, even if their faith in the reasoning of the Russian leadership wasn't. But here we are almost one year on for the conflict, with Russia having pulled troops from almost every front it was involved in. But Syria, and its now almost 12-year-old civil war, is still going on. The battlefield is changing, and importantly to us, so is the Russian doctrines. But now the top-tier Russian analysts are once again doing the math from Syria to work out the answer in Ukraine. So what does that math tell us? What lessons can we take from Syria that apply to Russia's other conflicts? How is the situation on the ground in Syria changing? And how are nations like Turkey, Israel, and Iran seeking to take advantage of the situation? Well, to answer that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Fighting the Previous War Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As the Arab Spring uprising gradually hit in Syria after being pushed back for a long time, you know, and I was there at the time watching this build up. The information, the intelligence that was being provided to these Russian advisors was from people who had a vested interest in convincing the Russians that things were going well both because it was required of them by the regime that they say the regime is strong, but also because obviously they want the military advisors who were going to be making decisions about whether military support of various types is going to continue coming. They want those people to be confident that they're not throwing good money after bad. So the Syrian official leadership had an incentive to 
convince the Russian advisors that things were going well. And the Russian advisors had no particular reason to go beyond that. Joanne Cummings is a distinguished senior fellow on national security at the Middle East Institute and an adjunct professor specializing in Middle East political dynamics at Baylor University. Joanne is also a retired foreign service officer for the U.S. Department of State with multiple awards to her name. She served in a variety of leadership positions in embassies ranging from Yemen to Micronesia and was most recently the Polad to the combined joint task force against ISIS, whilst also serving as an advisor to senior military commanders in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the broader Middle East. And we're thrilled to have her on the program today. At the beginning of this, the, the opposition was not the same that it is now and was moving very, very quickly and expanding its support and popularity. The Russians were approached and were told, if you back us, then we will also ensure that you continue to have the base that you want. But the Russians felt, well, no, Assad's the one that's going to come out on top, and therefore we are going to maintain our longstanding connection with the bird in our hand. So from the beginning of the civil war in 2011, Russia was supplying Assad's forces with everything from intelligence to ammunition supplies through advisors. But it was in 2015 that Russia really stepped up its operations inside Syria, providing troops on the ground, ranging from regular forces to Wagner mercenaries to military police and even special forces. The Russian Navy also jumped in to support Damascus, firing missiles in support from the Mediterranean and Caspian Seas. But the real game changers though were the Russian Air Force, who since the ramp up in 2015, have launched over 71,000 sorties over Syria. And even as the war in Ukraine continues to drag on, the sortie rate hasn't dropped by all that much. So you've been working on this battle space for a long time. So how much of an impact do you think the Russian intervention had on this conflict? Well, there are two assumptions there. One is about whether Russia was extremely influential in the success of the assets. And the other is whether Russia actually cared at all about ISIS, or frankly, whether Assad cared about ISIS. And that's where I would question the argument that Russia came in and was able to support the regime against ISIS, and that's why it was important. The Damascus and Moscow both were focused on the survival of the Assads and the survival of a system that Russia had been deeply involved in for some time. Neither of them actually cared about ISIS as long as it was not the proximate risk to Damascus, and it wasn't. Looking at Russia as they came in to protect the government against ISIS is an incorrect context for what was going on. If you look at, in each year after ISIS gained strength, if you look at the pattern of strikes, of airstrikes that Russia was doing in Syria, 90% were against Syrian opposition. A very small number were against ISIS bases. And I would argue that those strikes that were against ISIS elements were done specifically to be able to say to the international community, we are here helping the government against ISIS. So the battlefield in Syria is roughly divided into about six sides. 
the majority of the country, and around a half to two-thirds of it, is controlled by Bashar al-Assad and the National Syrian Army. These are the forces that are backed by Russia, and to a lesser extent Iran. Then there are the Syrian rebels who control a chunk in the northwest corner of the country, and as time drags on, we're seeing that increasingly their leadership are becoming more and more radical in their beliefs. Then there are the STF, or the Syrian Democratic Forces, and these are the guys in the north, northeast, and east of the country, who control roughly about a quarter of it. These are the ground forces that are mostly the Kurdish groups, with a few extras hanging on. Then Turkey owns a chunk of territory along the southern border in the north of Syria. Israel occupies the Golan Heights in the southwest corner of the country, and ISIS occupies a few spatterings of territory across the country. Now, obviously, there's a lot of players in this battlefield here, and all of these countries would operate in very different manners. So can you take us through how, let's say, someone like the Russians and their strategy would differ from, let's say, the Americans or the Turkish? In, in a sense, it's almost uh, different ecological niches. Certainly, the Iranians and the Russians were operating at different levels, literally. The Iranians were far more engaged in ground operations, in support for ground operations. The Russians were much more involved in air operations. And of course, this is one reason that their performance in Syria looks different than their performance in Ukraine, because it's a quite different part of their military. In terms of the United States, the so much of the fighting against ISIS was being done very much on the ground by the SDF. And of course, the composition of the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, changed as ground was retaken from ISIS. So while the initial fighting force at the very beginning was primarily drawn the uh, Kurdish YPG, YPJ, more of it became Arab, Muslim, Christian, other groups as they moved south. By the time they reached the final battles around Baghuz, the vast majority of the actual fighters on the ground were Arabs, not Kurds. But this was very, very in-the-mud fighting. The U.S. element there was in two parts. It was both support, providing material, providing guidance and intelligence, and then also, at times, air support. So the air aspect would be comparable in terms of purpose between Russia and the United States, both of them identifying bad guys on the ground and trying to take them out. The enormous difference is that any U.S. activity from the air was fully supported by intelligence and was aimed entirely at military targets. Whereas with Russia, a huge amount of its bombing campaign was simply against civilian targets. And this is, this is where you can see the Russian focus on supporting the Syrian government against Syrian opposition. Because that was not where ISIS was. And what sort of ground forces were Russia putting into the field here? The Russians have, in addition to their air force, have also built up ground forces in Syria. But they've done that both through their ordinary, regular 
ground forces and also through use of the Wagner Group. And as anywhere else that Russia has conducted operations, either formally or not, uh, the Wagner Group has been their deniable option. In some cases, when Wagner operatives were going to be caught up in, in something that would not turn out well for them, the, the Russians were placed in the difficult position of denying them, but then in the end having to say, no, 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 don't take action against them. They're actually part of ours. So the span of time that we're looking at with Russia in Syria, sort of from 2011 on, we've seen a shift, a gradual change from primarily air to regular troops then including Wagner, particularly when they're pushing them out into the northeast. We're going to talk a lot more about how operationally the war in Ukraine is changing things on the ground in Syria a bit later on. But for now, I want to talk about a trend that was already unfolding before the invasion of Ukraine. Even at that point, the US had began to lose interest in Syria for quite a few years now, and was spending less money and effort on the affairs of the country. Even predating the February invasion, the US had less than a thousand troops on the ground in Syria. And this trend is really best demonstrated by the fact that most high-level talks on the Syria issue don't even see the US sitting at the table anymore, with the latest talks in Astana being between the Turks, the Russians, and the Syrians. And with the US stepping back, Russia well and truly filled that power vacuum, with many outlets even suggesting that Russia would give the green light or red light to other countries running operations inside Syria. But now fast-forwarding to the period before the Ukrainian invasion, and Russia had become already exasperated putting out fires in the Caucasus and Central Asia, and now adding Ukraine on top of that, Russia is increasingly stretching its forces thinner and thinner, with Ukraine well and truly becoming their primary focus of attention, and operations like Tajikistan and Syria becoming, well, a bit of a sideshow to Moscow. And since the invasion of Ukraine, Moscow has even began moving decorated generals like Gerasimov or Dvodnikov, who really didn't know Syria like the back of their hand, and redeploying them to Ukraine. So I want to ask you what happens if we see this trend continuing? And if the war in Ukraine continues to suck oxygen from Russia, and Russia continues to lose interest in this region of the world, do you think it would be countries like Turkey, Iran, or Israel that would move into the new power vacuum and become the power brokers here in Syria? It's easy to look at Russia and Iran as playing a very similar role in Syria because both of them, of course, came in and increased their presence to support Assad to, to maintain the stability of the regime. However, they have not always been friends on the ground. They certainly have this common goal, but when it comes to whether it is fighting styles or the ultimate goals that each country has within Syria, they can be quite different. So, you know, you have, you have Iranian structured militias, you have to an extent Iranian proselytizing. Russia does not care about those things. Russia is not trying to do those things. Russia is trying to present outward. It's trying to be the international community's success story in Syria. And it's also simply trying to create some sort of context within which Assad can rejoin the ranks of legitimate leaders in the region. I think that's still up in the air, despite the visits that are going on right now. Turkey is interesting 
because Turkey's relationship with Syria and Turkey's relationships with Russia have both gone through significant variations, both historically, obviously, but even more recently. What Turkey hopes to get out of Syria is as much about Erdogan's domestic political standing as it is about Erdogan and Turkey's desire to be a a major player regionally. So the laser focus on pushing back the YPG, which of course they consider to be the Syrian branch of the PKK, is is about domestic politics in Turkey. Hey, Michael here in Post chiming in with a very quick footnote. Just in case you haven't checked out our Iraq or Turkey pieces, which go into far more detail about this particular subject, I'll quickly insert some clarifications on some of the anacronyms used here. The YPG, or the People's Protection Units, is the military unit made up of foreign fighters in the Syrian Democratic Forces. These are the mostly Kurdish troops fighting in the north and east of the country. The PKK is the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is a Kurdish militant political organization or armed guerrilla movement, depending on who you ask. With the PKK historically operating throughout Kurdistan, but primarily based in the mountainous Kurdish regions of southeastern Turkey and northern Iraq. As I said earlier, we have much longer pieces on this that go into far better detail, but for now, the important things you need to know, the YPG are the Kurdish-led parts of the Syrian Democratic Forces, some of the anti-government, anti-Turkey forces in Syria. The PKK are a political movement mostly based in southeastern Turkey. Okay, with that, let's get back to Joanne. Now, if you are taking a very Turcocentric view of this, you would say, well, it's, it's national security, so of course that is going to be a major focus. But looking at it at a more macro level, Erdogan has been able to use counter-Kurdish, counter-PKK rhetoric to build up his own support within the country. We must stand together in order to defeat this, this threat on our borders and within our country. However, Turkey has had arrangements and dealings and agreements with Russia in Syria in various places, whether it is northwest or northeast. Given that Russia is extremely concerned with its lack of success in Ukraine, I think one could argue that Putin will want to declare victory in Syria in order to be able to move out troops, material, planes, and just generally spend less time worrying about it, and would therefore be trying with some energy right now to finalize a relationship with Turkey that would not counter that narrative. So if Turkey is brought into an agreement in Syria that gives Turkey what it wants, control of the northern region, destruction of Kurdish groups that Erdogan doesn't like, then Turkey may say, okay, we will allow Russia to have a win in the rest of Syria. I don't know that that's what will ultimately happen, but I think that's what Russia would like to have happen. Now, the, the, the challenge in Northeast Syria 
is is far more complicated than we usually give it credit for because you know it's so easy to talk about Kurdistan or Rojava or Syrian Kurds but i mean those are three entirely different things if we talk about Kurdistan as where Kurds live well that spans multiple countries and it spans Kurdish groups who are not necessarily friendly to each other in that broad expanse of territory. Within Syria, the Kurds who in many ways lead the SDF are in conflict with other Kurds within Syria who are hostile to them and, and hostile to the PKK in Turkey. Within the area that the SDF wants to claim as Rojava, they're not the, the demographic majority. Now, does Damascus care about that? Obviously, they care about the optics of not having control over their full sovereign territory. But in practical terms, the issues are more access to resources, and resources in this case would include water, and it would include oil, gas, petroleum products. So the Russian interest, Kurdish interest, Turkish interest, all touches on these things. There are fields, oil fields, that span the border with Turkey. Oil is literally oozing up from the ground. And there are small rigs on both sides of the border in the same oil field. Anyone who controls that is going to make some money, not a huge amount. But more importantly, various groups want to preclude others from having access to them. So Turkey wants to ensure that the SDF does not have access because that would give them an independent source of income. Russia doesn't want any element that would challenge Syrian sovereignty to have access to them, whether it is Turkey or Kurds or anyone else. So the, the idea that Syria has major oil wealth is false. But within the context of Syria, the contribution that oil used to make to government revenue was significant. As much as Ukraine is forcing Moscow's hands when it comes to Russian operations in Syria, it isn't the only front facing the squeeze, with Russia looking very closely at its garrisons in Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Armenia, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, Libya, Guinea, and even the Central African Republic, and deciding how much of a priority these are as compared to Ukraine. So if the war in Ukraine does continue to drag on and chew up more Russian blood and treasure, do you think we'll begin to see the end of Russian international adventurism, both here in Syria and across the region? When we look at, at Russia's lack of success in Ukraine, it's easy to say, well, they have shown themselves to be less than effective. Clearly, they're going to go back home, lick their wounds, and maybe not do that again. At this point, I, I remember many of the things that were written about Saddam Hussein after the Iran-Iraq war and before his invasion of Kuwait, when people were saying, you know, he has no interest whatsoever 
in taking any military action after that non-success. So I think we should be cautious because we need to look at what Russia is trying to achieve through these military adventures. It is not necessarily a question of whether the battle is successful. If Putin is trying to ensure that Russia is a major world player, the lack of success in Ukraine may require that there be more more active engagement in areas where Putin feels Russia has been more successful. So if if he feels that actions within Syria were successful, then he may actually seek to find other avenues in the broader Middle East region, including North Africa and Iran, rather than saying, well, Ukraine didn't work well, so we're going to stop this military adventurism. I think he may feel that he must expand or lose everything. And of course, Wagner Group is engaged in a lot of places already. So ramping up based on Wagner presence, frankly, would not be difficult because you could justify it in terms of we have Russians that are at risk, we have a, a Russian presence, and we need to go in and defend them. So I think that I think that Putin's calculations on military action need to be viewed in terms of less him as the senior military strategist and more in terms of his desire to have Russia appear significant in the international community. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Who has the seat at the table is usually the make or break of international negotiations. As if you seat too many people at the table, you're going to get small players who act as spoilers, knowing that frankly they have nothing to lose, so it's often better to keep them out. But put too few people at the table, and any agreement to come from it won't carry any legitimacy. So what interests me is the fact that the latest Astana talks, the conference to supposedly end the war in Syria, only has three people at the table. And sitting at that table are the Russians, the Turks, and Damascus, Assad's government. No Americans, no Kurds, no Israelis, and no Iranians. Are we at a point where the fate of this war is being completely decided by Moscow and Ankara? And with Syria becoming a sideshow to Moscow, will Putin give Ankara concessions here in exchange for things like ending Turkey's support for the Ukrainians? Would we'll it answer that? We'll turn to our second guest. Part 2. A Table for Three 
there's both geopolitical and domestic political reasons for Russia to be into, uh, interested in Syria. As you and your listeners will know, uh, Putin thought that the fall of the Soviet Union was a great catastrophe, the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, uh, in part because it created an imbalanced world with a hyperpower, you know, with the United States unbalanced by any other great power. And also because for Russia and its own unique national destiny, in his view, it it limited its access to important places that it had reached to during the Cold War, including the Levant. And Syria was a major access point to the Mediterranean. Because of the geography of the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, Russia's access to the sea from the Black Sea outward is always limited and conditional on wartime and peacetime conditions and the druthers of the Turks. But having a major naval presence full-time in Syria, as well as air presence now, is something that allows Russia to project power throughout that region and to put pressure on a among others, uh, Turkey and uh, Israel, and also to sort of counterbalance the U.S. Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean. So that's the geopolitical reason. And in Russia jumped in with both feet in, in 2014, 2015, but they never really left Syria. They were in Syria, just not as militarily active in the early years of the uprising, but they've been there, porting the Assads back to the time of Hafez al-Assad, uh, Bashar's father. Rich Alton is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Turkey, Rich is also a retired U.S. Army colonel and has served in the U.S. Department of State as both a military and civilian advisor, working in the Policy Planning Office and later the Office of the Special Representative for Syria. He also previously served as the U.S. Defense Attaché for Kabul and as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Training and Development for the U.S. Security Coordination in Jerusalem. He's researched and published extensively on matters of policy and strategy with a focus on the greater Middle East, going on to help shape the interagency discussion national policy options for transitions in Iraq, Afghanistan, Turkey, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority, and has spent over a decade serving the U.S. military and diplomatic missions overseas, including combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we're thrilled to have him back on the program today. The domestic reason, it's underappreciated, I think, that the, during the decades of close relations between Syria and Russia, and there have been tens of thousands of Syrians who have gone to study in Moscow and tens of thousands of intermarriages between Russians who have served in Syria and Syrians who have gone to Russia. So there's literally this community of people for whom they're essentially dual nationals, and they put large pressure on Moscow not to abandon the Alawite regime of Bashar al-Assad. So it's a fairly popular relationship, I think, in Russia. It's seen as a long-term ally. Ideologically speaking, maybe we can add this as a third reason. Uh, the idea that Russia is a country that honors its commitments is part of their sort of information warfare and information competition with the United States. They point to countries on the fence uh, in various regions and saying, look, if the U.S. loses interest in you, uh, like they had worked with Saddam for a certain period of time and they flipped on him, they worked with uh, the Afghan government, they flipped on them, we won't walk away from you. So if you're uh, an Assad or sort of an uh, authoritarian government in Africa, they say, we'll be there and we won't put, con put conditions on our aid and we won't leave you in the lurch when domestic unrest happens. Russia wanted to prove the point that they would stick by an ally. Uh, and I, I think all three of those reasons played into why Russia cares and continues to care. Can you take us through how the Russians carry out their ground operations inside Syria and what kind of troops they use, as well as how this might differ from, let's say, how the Americans carry out their operations? Well, so the Russians have, have practiced a form of hybrid war, and you know it's something that they're doing in sort of a coalition environment with the Iranians, Hezbollah, Syrian Hezbollah, and Lebanese Hezbollah, as well as the Syrian Arab army, which are the, are the Assad forces. They are not a conventional army in the sense that we understand it, uh, or in the sense that they are trying to fight a, a fairly conventional war in Ukraine with large ground formations maneuvering. 
the force in Syria that they deployed was, you know, in the high single thousands or perhaps low double-digit thousands, 10,000, 20,000. There were estimates of 60,000 and so forth, but the numbers were far smaller than that. Um, what they did do is they, they had their highest firepower assets, the sort of cruise missiles being fired from naval vessels, and then, of course, the bombing of with their fixed-wing aircraft and with Assad's forces using the barrel bombs off of helicopters, bombing civilian areas. It's sort of a population-centric warfare, but not in the way the United States thinks of it. This was a, a warfare that was in places like Ghouta and uh, Reif Dimash, you know, broader Damascus, designed to frighten and crush the spirit of people standing up to the regime. And unfortunately, it's terribly effective when you're trying to crush, you know, the American way of counterinsurgency is to be very precise or to try to be very precise, to focus on intelligence and gathering uh, sort of pinpoint information and conducting raids and limited airstrikes to get at uh, the infrastructure of the, call them terrorists, call them opposition fighters, whatever you want to. It depends on who's fighting whom. Uh, but for the U.S. in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere, it's very intelligence-centric and uh, focused on trying to protect populations and persuade populations. I would say, in contrast, the Russian method, uh, which goes back to Grozny and places before that, is sheer destruction. And to change demography through ethnic cleansing, through the destruction of entire city areas, as they did in Aleppo and, and parts of Damascus. And unfortunately, it's effective uh, because what it does is it, it removes, it doesn't leave you in a contest for the hearts and minds of the people. What it does is it just removes those people and results in a new demographic equation and in secure control of a devastated or a population emptied area. So I, I think the Russian package of forces that they deployed was appropriate for that task. They uh, have fixed-wing aircraft with not precision strike to the degree that the Americans have it, but with some precision uh, munitions. They also have uh, aircraft capable of doing the direct bombing of cities and towns. They have commandos to help guide these and to help subvert populations. The other thing I'd say is that they did a, a reasonable job of trying to sort of flip opposition fighters into new formations that would realign with the regime. So after an area, you know, this happened down in Dara and also in Damascus, those people that they had killed or who had fled aside, there were some people left and they offered them jobs, sort of a pragmatic approach to saying, if you work for Assad now, we'll pay you a salary. Uh, so that was you know, one exception perhaps to the just hammer, the big hammer approach that they've taken. In some, I think we'd say that through a combination of uh, intelligence, subversion, assassination, and, and focusing on destruction of the civilian components of support for the opposition, the, the Russians effectively carried out a sort of hybrid war that was able to crush the uh, most of the opposition, although they're still, of course, in the Northwest, the Turkish-supported opposition. I will also add one other thing, and this is not a tactic. You asked about tactics. But at the political level of warfare and sort of the above strategic level, translating specific military actions into specific military goals is incredibly important. And frankly, the West has largely failed at that. We're still fighting a counterterrorism campaign against ISIS in Syria, but we, are, we don't have a strategy that I can tell for the broader resolution of the Syrian war. The Russians knew exactly what they wanted, and that was to cripple opposition to Assad and to ensure his ability to stay in power at any cost. And they've used all sorts of things to, to make sure that happens, including cutting deals with the Turks and cutting deals with the Iranians and so forth. But they have a clear political strategy, and we really don't, which we're certainly not working in an explicit way for the overthrow of Assad. And if you ask sort of people in Washington or, or London or, or uh, a number of other Western capitals, it's not entirely clear what we as a coalition are working for. So we failed at that level of warfare, the translation of uh, force into policy or political goals. And the Russians really have had a better hand in that regard.
The Russians were fairly successful in their operations in Syria. Airstrikes were constant, logistics were maintained, and most operations carried out inside Syria would produce minimal Russian casualties. And because of this, I sometimes get the feeling that the successes here in Syria may have given the Russia watchers, and maybe even the Kremlin, a bit of overconfidence when it came to Russia's operational capabilities. So why did the Russian playbook work here in Syria, but in many ways failed when they tried to redo this in Ukraine? Well, there's a number of factors that you know make the nature of the war different, and war is very contextually uh, sensitive, right? So the same approach that you do in one country will not work in another. The first thing is political will. There is no unified political opposition and no sense of Syrian nationality as a sort of patriotic rallying point. Uh, whereas in Ukraine, the sense of national identity has been forged in the crucible of conflict with Russia. So the will to resist is what really makes this different. In uh, in Syria, to the extent that there is a majority population, it's it's the Sunni Arabs, but they're terribly divided politically. And then there's the, the Alawites and, and the Kurds and the, and the Turkmen, and all riven by very deep political divisions. So there is no single rallying point for the opposition. And the U.S., in the early days of support to the opposition in 2011, 2012, struggled to find a center, something to, to unify this around. The Ukrainians had their center. It was uh, Zelensky as a president and the idea of Ukrainian sovereignty and separateness from Russia. The second thing is scale. I mean, the, the Syrian battle space is smaller and much of it is desert. It's not populated to the same degree. I mean, Ukraine, I think, is at least twice the population of Syria, but the terrain is also sort of forested and swampy in some places, mountainous in others, and with rivers across it, it's much more defensible. So to launch an operation, the scale of what the Russians tried to do in February of 2022 is a much different in, uh, undertaking than trying to bomb four or five centers of rebel activity in a Middle Eastern arid country. So the, the nature of the task was very different. And the other thing I'd say is that the Russians have what, you know, what I call sort of a 5% force, which is the top 5% of their military looked pretty good and was pretty good. They had some high technology weapons. Their very top pilots, their very top commandos were pretty good. So if you deploy a force of, say, 10,000, 15,000 people, and you've got just the creme de la creme of your Russian military, they're going to perform at a reasonably high level, albeit against you know a very low level of competition. But what happened in Ukraine is they had to combine, they had to deploy the whole force, a combined arms force that included armor and engineers and infantry and logistics and things that hadn't been taken out of their uh, systems that hadn't been taken out of their warehouses and tested uh, trucks who didn't have spare tires, soldiers who hadn't been trained in a long time. So you got below that top 5% of the force and you got into 95% of a very, very weak force. So I, I think that this hollowness, if you will, of most of the Russian military, not all, but most, was exposed badly when they had to face a large, determined, and fairly competent opponent, which was the Ukrainians. And that's why people probably overestimated, based on the small scope of the Syrian conflict, what the Russians were capable of. And if we look back now at thoughts about how this impenetrable Russia or Syrian and Russian air defense system in uh, the Syrian airspace, how we'd lose dozens and dozens of planes if the Americans ever intervened in the early years of the uprising, or that this would become some sort of a bloodbath. I think they look really, really overwrought, because the truth is the Russian force at the very top was okay, but most of it was nowhere near meeting the requirements of modern combined arms warfare. Well, speaking of Russian air defenses, I wanted to get your opinion on a question that's been plaguing Russian defense watches for a while now. See, Russia recently moved a whole bunch of their S-300 air defense missile systems from western Syria into Crimea. Now, while some people will say this is because, well, Russia desperately needs the extra air defenses to protect the Crimean coastline, others will point to the fact that the S-300s 
kept locking on to Israeli jets, further exacerbating tensions between Russia and Israel. So from someone closer to the situation, why do you think Russia moved their S-300 missiles? I would say that it's probably more because they need them in Ukraine. In fact, they never have achieved air superiority uh, or air dominance in Ukraine. They've had ongoing discussions for nearly almost a decade now with the Israelis about Israeli flights. There have been Syrian air defense missiles, and we have to keep in mind the higher end systems, the S-300s, were never actually transferred to full Syrian control, right? Although they're operating from Syrian bases, they're operated by Russians. Uh, whereas the, the more decrepit older systems were operated by the Syrian Arab army itself. And the Syrian Arab army tried to shoot down Israeli planes all the time. So the idea that the Russian radars would paint and the Syrians try to shoot at Israeli planes, it's not that much of an anomaly. Actually, this has been going on for some time. There's actually been surface-to-air missiles that landed in Israeli territory in the Golan. So I don't think that this idea that you know we have to keep our systems antagonizing the Israelis, I don't think that's really the main driver. I think the main driver is that they are becoming increasingly vulnerable to Ukrainian strikes from UAVs, you know, unmanned uh, the drones, armed drones and so forth, even on Russian territory, uh, but potentially uh, cruise missiles and, and other types of even fixed wing aircraft, which the Ukrainians still have a few of. So I think it's more the point that they need to defend their own airspace rather than they're worried about antagonizing the Israelis with these systems. So if that is the case, how would Israel respond if a Russian air defense system shot down an Israeli plane? So the Israelis have no compunction about um, firing, on, certainly on the Syrian bases and killing Syrians and killing Iranians. And of course, just, just this week, they shut down the Damascus airport with multiple strikes there, which is separate from this issue of whether a, an Israeli aircraft would be shot down. So the first thing is there's no mental barrier that the Israelis would have to cross to retaliate with a direct strike. Now, if they knew that it was a Russian that had fired this, they would probably go through an additional thought exercise and maybe a political protocol to talk to Russia and to protest about this. If they thought it was a Syrian who fired it, they'd just destroy the base or the rather the system at the base that had fired it. If a Russian, and I think the Russians have been very careful to discuss this with the Israelis and to avoid having a Russian system shoot directly at the Israelis. I don't think the Israelis would uh, sort of knee-jerk go after the Russian launch system in the same way that they would go after a Syrian launch system. But there, there would be a retaliation um, if the Russians had given no, no satisfaction to the initial protest and no explanation, no satisfying explanation about why and how it happened. If it was perceived as the new rule of the game from Russia rather than a, an aberration or a mistake, then I think you'd have a serious talk between the U.S. and, and Israel about where and when to, to remedy that. So now let's move to a country that Russia has directly fired upon numerous times, and that's Turkey, which there seems to be a very different dynamic here. In fact, there are several analysts that will point out that Erdogan only ever launches a large offensive into Syria, usually a few weeks after he's had a direct one-on-one -on -one meeting with Putin. Do you think that suggests that Erdogan is either asking Russia for permission to carry out these operations, or that he's telling Russia what's going to happen, and the two of them are coordinating together to make sure they don't accidentally start shooting at each other? You know, it's an interesting question, and I, and I hear people in, in Washington and in the media talk about red light or green light, uh, sort of a, this traffic system for the, uh, for the Turks that either the United States or Russia needs. I don't think that Turkey obeys a green light, red light paradigm either from the United States or from Russia. Now, I think it pays attention to yellow lights, and, and by that I mean there's real reasons for caution. I, I tell you, the United States and Russia both 
in my understanding, try to dissuade Turkey from its previous military operations in Syria. So this is Afrin in 2018. Uh, this was uh, especially 2019's uh, Peace Spring operation. When the Turks have determined that you know they have a strong and proximate national security interest, uh, for instance, it's all you know the PKK getting them off the border, the YPG, the Syrian branch of the PKK, uh, along the Turkish border itself. They're ultimately going to act, in my view. I, I think that the idea that they can be entirely dissuaded either by Russia or by the United States is wrong. So, you know, we can't really green light it. But what happens is this carefully conducted negotiation between both sides where the Turks make it clear that they are going to launch an operation at a certain point. And then, so by, by the way, by threatening that, you lose nothing because you, the timing remains entirely up to Turkey. In the case of uh, the Operation Peace Spring in 2019, it was signaled at least a year before they actually launch the operation. And then they talk and they negotiate and they see if they can get what they want without actually fighting. You wear out the target by doing that, by the way, because if the target, in this case, the YPG with the Syrian Arab forces, the Assad forces that are alongside them in places like uh, Manbij and Tel Rifat, and the Iranian proxy forces, which a lot of people don't realize they are alongside the YPG as well in these places, you keep them guessing because they constantly think the attack's gonna come, the attack's gonna come, the attack's gonna come. And then you see if you've demonstrated resolve, whether the United States or Russia will try to give some sort of concession uh, with regards to the, the immediate ask, which in this case would be pulling back the YPG from towns like Tel Rifat and Manbij uh, on their own. I think this is why also he's talking to Assad uh, along with the Russians, trying to see if he can get politically what he signaled the intent to do militarily. So do the Russians or the uh, Americans ultimately have the ability to stop the Turks uh, within 30 kilometers of the Turkish border from launching an operation? I really don't think so. We don't have the troops there to do it, and we certainly would not conduct airstrikes against the NATO ally. Russia does not have as many troops even as they once did in Syria and have demonstrated in places like Idlib, even in 2020, that they can't really stop the Turks either. So that said, there's ways to raise costs for Turkey in any military operation. So that's where I think we're at in this. I think that the Turks have an eye to the end game of the Syrian conflict. They're trying to finagle or negotiate whatever concessions they can get without a military operation, but still maintaining the willingness to actually launch one. And this is also a, uh, simultaneously a pressure tactic against the YPG itself. What about the most recent threat where Turkey is claiming that they want to create a 30 kilometer deep buffer zone between Syria and Turkey? As some people are claiming it's a bluff for Erdogan. As the Turkish election is coming up, and Erdogan's position doesn't look good, and he would much rather fight an election on national foreign policy than he would on the economy. But others are suggesting this isn't a bluff, and are pointing to the numerous videos of Turkish armoured vehicles currently moving toward the border with Syria at the moment. So what do you think? Do you think Erdogan's bluffing about this offensive? Do I think it's a bluff? I don't think it's a bluff. I think at some point they intend to ensure that the YPG is out of these uh, Arab-majority areas west of the Euphrates. That's Manbij and Tel Rifat. Do I think they're guaranteed to launch a military operation for it? Well, the closer we get to Turkish elections, the higher the risk of a military operation. So I'm actually thinking that the uh, at the moment that these trilateral talks with Russia and Syria are an attempt to, to get through dialogue and the, com the combination of dialogue and threats, what they have been signaling the willingness to seize through an outright military operation. A lot of these talks hinge upon the normalization of relations between Ankara and Damascus. But surely if that happens, then the main Turkish enemy, the YPG, will either not agree to the deal, therefore making all of this irrelevant, or will combine forces and amalgamate back into the Syrian National Army, 
now making the Syrian army into a real threat to Turkey again. So on this particularly central issue, is there any kind of compromise here that you could see Ankara actually agreeing with? We have to realize that this uh, idea that Russia holds the cards and that Turkey is the supplicant in Syria does not reflect Turkish thinking, and nor does it reflect the power relationship on the ground. In fact, especially since the uh, beginning of the war in Ukraine, in which Turkey has pursued what it calls as a, a, a path of pro-Ukrainian neutrality. So it talks to Russia, does business with Russia, but it's continuing to send arms, drones and other things to the Ukrainians. And so they've helped bleed Russia, in a sense, in the north, uh, in the Ukraine, at the same time that Russia's relative force advantage in the, in the south, in Syria, is decreasing. The Turks see this as part of the same strategic calculus. So the idea that the Russians have some ability to compel Turkey to normalize, I think is false. But that said, you know, the Turks don't anathematize regimes in the same way that we do. They'll talk to Russia, they'll talk to Venezuela, they've always talked to the Iranians. And frankly, at the intel level, the level of intelligence directors, they've also talked to Syria before. So it is raising the profile to have, uh, if, if Erdogan were to meet in a trilateral format, um, with Assad and with Putin. But this will not be the result of the Russians saying, you must do this and you must normalize. By the way, one meeting does not mean normalization. And I, I think that if you keep in mind that President Erdogan sort of has political responsibility for as many Syrians as President Assad does, you realize that he's he's not going to betray those people by suddenly throwing in with the regime entirely. There are 4 million Syrians in Turkey. There are another 5 to 6 million Syrians in areas of northern Syria where the Turks have a military presence and essentially political patronage. So that's uh, you know nearly 10 million Syrians. And you take out the, the several million that are in the northeast beyond Assad's control. Essentially, uh, President Erdogan is a co-president of Syria. Right? So this is not going to be this is not going to be a situation where he goes hat in hand and says, "Hey, can can you please keep the YPG off my border?" He will give not an inch in terms of uh, territory or withdrawal of forces or abandoning the Syrian allies of the Turks without firm guarantees and concessions from the other side. So I th I see this as a dialogue or a trialogue, I guess, in which all sides have their eyes open. All sides think that they're maneuvering for tactical or political advantage, but no one's going to make any stupid mistakes and, and give away the farm for free. And I, I certainly think that the Russians can't force the Turks to do that. Uh, Russia's also involved in sort of a frenemy competition with Iran in Syria because both of them want to be the primary patron. I don't see any chance that the, that the Russians pull out their forces entirely. I think the Russians really want to see the American forces gone from the Northeast. So as long as we are there, I'm quite certain that they will be there. And, and that's um, an equation I can't solve because I don't know how long the U.S. will to, to remain in Northeast Syria will be there. But I think the Russians will keep their military policemen who do the joint patrols with the Turks. They'll keep their advisory group that is advising Assad's forces and they'll keep their airstrike capabilities and they'll stay involved in that. If there is some sort of a detente uh, in the north, some deal by which I, I could imagine a deal uh, under which Assad says, okay, formally, you know, the post office is now Damascus post office again operating in the north. The electric company is again going to be operating under state authority, but no military or intelligence forces in the areas where Turkey is sort of sponsoring. I, I think there could be some tacit deal by which formal recognition of Syrian authority is there, but not the insertion, reinsertion of security forces, because the Turks are going to have to protect the people that could flee into Turkey as new refugees and that have allied with Turkey for so long, pending long-term political outcomes. But if a deal like that occurred, what it would imply, it would be a 
distinct lessening of the tensions and the possibility of direct fighting across those uh, the current lines of control. And I think in that situation, you could see a further drawdown of Russian forces. But they're not going to pull out, I, at least not as long as the Americans are there. The extra forces that have been there since the start, you know, well, at least since 2015, we'll say. I, I think the Russians are in for the long game in Syria. So if the Russians can actually work together with the Turks here in Syria, how will this impact other fronts where the two are involved? For instance, Turkey's directly supporting Ukraine with missiles and drones. And in the Libyan civil war, Russia and Turkey are the major benefactors of each side. Even in Central Asia, we're seeing Turkey directly working to supplant Russian influence in the region. So will Ankara and Moscow compartmentalize this deal to just be about Syria? Or is this the beginning of a larger thaw between the Russians and the Turks? Well, you know, I'd say that this we might, might call strategic Manichaeanism, to, to divide the world into black and white, into enemy and friend, is a peculiar Western trait. I, I'd say it's uniquely American. This idea that if you're my friend in one place, you must be my friend in all places. And if you're my enemy in one place, you're probably my enemy in all places. That's not old world strategic thought. That's not how the Persians or the Russians or the Turks or the Arabs think. And it is entirely consistent with the history of Russo-Turkish relations to have them fighting on one front and then a year later or two years later, uh, or even in the same year, uh, collaborating or cooperating against a common threat or working towards a common opportunity in another place. The name of the game in Turkey with regards to statecraft and foreign policy is balance. So if they can balance against Russia in one place, they can balance with Russia against a third party in another place. And I, I don't think that's inconsistent, but it is a delicate game. So we talked about the Russian names in Syria. And we talked about the Turkish aims in Syria. But what about the YPG? A coalition of everyone from the Kurds to disaffected Assyrians to parts of the Iranian Quds Force and a whole ragtag of other players. It's a force that sometimes the Americans have backed and it's a force that sometimes the Russians have even backed. And it's a force that may hold the balance of power here in Syria. And the question remains that if Damascus or Ankara end their fighting, Will the YPG either fight both of them, or join one of them, or attempt to make peace as well? What options does the YPG have if the fighting between Turkey and Syria ends? And this is a question that is particularly potent for Ankara, as many fear that Russia will look to use the YPG, the force that Ankara fears more than anyone else, to punish Erdogan right before an increasingly tight national election. That to give the YPG a win and embarrass Erdogan may cause a change of government in Ankara. So how likely is that to happen? And will the Russians ignore or use the YPG to their advantage? What we'll answer that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Green Lights and Long Fights The Iraqi Kurds, they're trying to play a balancing role, but they have relations with Russia. Russia, they have a consulate in Erbil, and also the Russians, they have inf investments in oil infrastructure in the Kurdistan region. So there's a number of Russian oil companies that are active in the Kurdistan regions. For the Syrian Kurds, obviously, uh, they have uh, both relations with uh, America and the US, but they have better relations with, with the United States in the fight against ISIS. Vladimir von Vilkenberg is a Dutch journalist and author writing predominantly about Kurdistan and Middle East foreign policy. He's written for everyone from Al Monitor to Kurdistan 24, as well as Al Jazeera and foreign policy, and is currently based in Erbil, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan. Vladimir is one of the best sources for on-the-ground information, both on the war in Syria and the operations of the YPG. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. Well, I mean, there were a lot of rumors that Russia would pull out troops because of the Ukrainian war. 
But you should also remember that a lot of the troops that Russia is using in the Syria, they are like military police at the moment. So if you look, for instance, to the joint patrols by uh, the Russians and the Turks, it's mostly Russian military police. And the Russians, they still have a presence in Syria, but it's different from during the Battle of Aleppo when Russia was doing a lot of airstrikes against Syrian uh, opposition groups. Uh, but in general, Russia is military less active than before. But that's also the reason for that is because you have this ceasefire agreements between or the Astana dialogue between Turkey, Russia and Iran. And also they have this sort of ceasefire uh, agreements around Idlib and areas under Turkish controls. It's basically sort of a frozen conflict. So it's very different from the active battle it was before. So with Russia, Damascus and Turkey in trilateral talks over Syria at the moment, the YPG is left out of these discussions. So out of these three, who are the YPG approaching at the moment to advocate on their behalf? So if, for instance, Russia, Turkey and Syria would make a deal, it will be difficult for the Syrian Kurds to have any form of autonomy because they could exclude them. At the moment, the Syrian Kurds have their autonomous zone, but it's not clear what, what it in the future is going to look like because they're not recognized by Damascus as an official area. And so far, uh, negotiations between them and Damascus, they have failed uh, because Damascus want them basically to surrender to the Syrian government. Like what happened with, for instance, Syrian rebels in uh, Dara, they had some form of uh, agreement surrender deal, but uh, they don't want to have something, they want to have something different. They prefer to have some form of recognition of autonomy in northeastern Syria. Damascus is basically waiting till the U.S. at some point get tired of Syria or pulls out. And Damascus controls the main uh, cities in Syria like Aleppo and uh, Damascus and other cities. So they're not really in a hurry to negotiate with the Syrian Kurds because they think at some point either Turkey could attack or the U.S. will pull out or anything else. So basically Damascus is not so much worried currently about making a fast deal with the Syrian Kurds because they think at some point they're going to benefit either from a new Turkish incursion, in which case the Syrian Kurds have to appeal again to Damascus to help them or basically that at some point maybe the U.S. could pull out. But of course, that can still take a lot of time. The Turkish have been talking about securing a 30-kilometer deep buffer zone using their military for a few weeks now. And if they do launch that offensive, how prepared are the YPG? Do you think they'd be able to fend off that Turkish offensive, or do you think they'll simply pull back across that 30-kilometer line? Well, I mean, if Turkey does a new incursion, it's not going to be a whole buffer zone. They're probably going to do an operation in uh, limited areas maybe around Mumbai or around Kobani. So it will not be the whole border area or the whole buffer zone that they want. It will be very difficult for the Syrian Kurds to defend against the Turkish army because, um, I mean, all these areas that are very flat and uh, they have they were digging a lot of tunnels to try to get an advantage. But, I mean, you cannot really fight against the Turkish army with just tunnels and the Turkish army, they have the drones, they have airplanes. So, for instance, in 2019, when they were fighting in Serekan in Tel Aviv, it took almost one week and four days when they were basically defeated by Turkey. So it will be very difficult for the Syrian Kurds to defend against that. So it it's, it's depends on where the fight is going to be. For instance, also they fought uh, against Turkey and Afrin and Turkey now controls Afrin. That took a little bit longer. It took like two months because they had a lot of uh, mountainous territory there. But the other areas that the Kurds now control, they are very flat. So it's very difficult to defend themselves. Uh, if they don't have air support. Uh, so it's going to be difficult. And in the past, what they always did when they when Turkey um, attacked is that they sought to have 
cooperation with the Syrian army basically to prevent the Turks from moving in further. But it's only basically US and Russia that can stop the Turks from moving in. And I don't think if Turkey really does an operation that uh, Syrian Kurds will be able to resist much. Uh, but of course, they can do an insurgency later after Turkey took control of the areas they want to control. But it's very difficult in the, these flat areas in, in northern Syria to defend it against the Turkish army and Syrian rebels. So you've been watching the Russian operations here in Syria very closely for a long time now. And you've seen how effective the Russians at times can be when they get their artillery and air power right. So why do you think that the Russian strategies work so well here in Syria, but nowhere near as well in Ukraine? Syrian rebels never got the same armed support as in Ukraine. And of course, also Ukraine, it's an, uh, Ukraine, it's an army of a state. And the Syrian rebels, they were non-state actors. So they were getting limited support from Turkey, Gulf states, some Western counters, including the US. There. So they're getting li limited support. And also there was always a fear in Syria to give Syrian rebels, for instance, anti-aircraft weapons because they're afraid that it could end up in the hands of jihadists uh, and then like being used against the West, basically, against civilians. So there was like a, a fear also of giving too many arms support to Syrian rebels because there was a fear that it could end up in the hands of jihadists. And as you know, during the civil war, there was also um, several times that jihadists and Syrian rebels, they worked together against the Syrian regime. So that's why you cannot really compare the, the combat power that the Syrian rebels have with that of, for instance, the Ukrainian army that is getting very extensive support basically from Western countries to fight against Russia. It was much easier for Russia to fight against rebels that didn't really have many much capabilities to, to fight to fight back. I mean, they don't have an air force, they don't have much anti-aircraft weapons. So the two big powers here shaping up seem to be Russia and Turkey. But who do you think takes the third place for influence inside Syria at the moment? Is it the United States or Israel or Iran or somebody else? Well, Russia played a very big role in supporting the Syrian government with the military, especially through basically by um, air, mostly by air capabilities, by air force. Uh, Iran played the role in giving a lot of ground troops to the Syrian regime. So through like armed groups like Hezbollah and others or Iraqi fighters and stuff. So they helped the regime with, with ground forces. So Iran played a big role in that. So, but if I have to say, I mean, compared to Iran and, and US, I think US still plays a big, a little bit bigger role as long as they stay in Northeast Syria. But Iran also plays a very big role. And that's why Russia also included them in the Astana format. But you also see that sometimes Iran plays a lesser role because, for instance, with the negotiations or reconciliation between Damascus and Ankara, Russia didn't involve the Iranians. The future of Syria will be decided by Russia and the US, but Iran did play a big role in giving the regime more manpower to survive when the Syrian army was falling apart and all the Syrian army, the armed groups were fighting against Damascus. What do you think it would take for Russia to step back and say, mission accomplished in Syria? What do you think would be a point where Moscow could declare a final victory and begin the next step of renormalizing Assad back into the international community? De facto, they already got what they wanted because Assad is still there. But for Russia, the, the perfect, for them, the perfect end goal would be that US and Turkish troops leave Syria and the Syrian government gets full control over its full territory again. So now still there's large parts of Syria that are under control of either the Kurds or Syrian opposition groups. So for Russia to have a full victory, it would mean that the Turkish army and US army leaves and those areas of the Syrian opposition and the Kurdish-led forces, they come under control of Damascus. In that case, I think Russia will say this is like perfect and now we can really reduce our role. Uh, but until now, Syria is still 
basically divided in uh, zones of influence. That's why Moscow is pushing, instead of Ankara launching a new incursion, they're trying to push Ankara to have a new deal with Damascus. Because if Damascus and Ankara agree, then there's a bigger chance that Turkey would move out from from Syria, move to remove their troops. And then also they could allow, for instance, a Turkish incursion or push out, trying to push out U.S. troops with like a Turkish military operation. Erdogan has elections coming up very soon, and it's an election that's looking increasingly tight. So if the polls continue to worse for him, many predict that he will use Syria as the issue to reframe the national discussion around foreign policy rather than the nosediving Turkish economy. If he does launch a military strike into Syria, it will energize one sector of the Turkish electorate. And if he gets a peace deal with Damascus or the YPG, it will likely energize a completely different sector of the Turkish electorate. So do you think there's a deal somewhere here that both of these sides would accept? And with that deal, do you think Russia or Damascus would also get behind it as well? It's still early to say if there's if it's easy for Damascus and Ankara to make a deal. I mean, they had made a deal before in so the so-called Adana agreement, where they make an agree, agreement to um, uh, basically to pull out, uh, push out the PKK from Syria and to make a deal on water. But I think it's difficult to say how it will look like in the future. But what what I wanted to say is basically that so far now it it looks that it's gonna stay a frozen conflict for a while. So there will not be big changes. But the second scenario would be if, for instance, if there will be an agreement with Ankara and Damascus, but this could still take several years, then it could really make a big difference because then they could make a deal on pulling out Turkish troops, making a deal on the Kurds. That would really change the situation. But I think for the moment now, it still looks like that it's going to stay a frozen conflict and that Syria is divided under influences zone. So zone on the influence of Russia, zone in, under the influence of Turkey, and a zone under the influence of uh, US. And uh, there's always a likelihood that Turkey does a new operations against the uh, Syrian Kurds. So that's what I think at the moment is that it will stay frozen conflict. But another scenario is that Ankara and Damascus will reach a deal. In this case, it will be very different. So two roads lay ahead. One that sees the war escalate and Turkey and Russia achieving their goals of the swing of a hammer. And the other, where backroom deals can be made, and the conflict either freezes into place or even resolves once and for all. But if it does, does that mean Russia can redeploy its forces for the upcoming offences in Ukraine? What lays ahead for Damascus and Russia's primary foothold in the Middle East? Where to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. The New Normal to an extent, the answer to that is is relatively simple, although you can dig deep and, and explain more. But the, the simple answer is the challenge that Russia faced in intervening in Syria in September 2015 was on a whole level of less significance than the challenge that Putin has faced in, in invading Ukraine. And the challenge in Syria was a loose network of dozens of non-state actors, militias, the Free Syrian Army, Islamist groups, as well as jihadists, very few of whom had sort of demonstrated much of a capacity for truly effective coordination. Um, and so although the Syrian regime had been pushed to the brink, the intervention in, in 2015 wasn't uh, an intervention against an actor that was posing an overwhelming challenge to the Russian military. Charles Lister is a senior fellow and the director for the Syria and Countering Terrorism and Extremism programs at the Middle East Institute. 
prior to joining MEI, Lister was also a senior consultant on the multinationally backed Syria Track 2 Dialogue Initiative, where he managed nearly three years of intensive face-to-face engagement with the leaderships of over 100 Syrian armed opposition groups. Lister is also a frequent source of briefings on Syria to political, military, and intelligence leaderships, including the United States and across Europe and the Middle East, and has also testified to congressional and parliamentary bodies throughout the US, UK, and Netherlands. And we're thrilled to have him back on the program today. You're absolutely right. Um, I think there, particularly amongst many of the Russian analyst community, there had long been a kind of assumption that the Russians had done such an enormously amazing job in Syria, uh, and therefore the, the threat and the challenge that Russia could potentially face elsewhere was to be taken very, 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 very seriously. And I think we overplayed. Uh, there was an overplaying of Russia's capabilities. But the reason why they had managed to achieve what they did in Syria was, as I say, because the challenge was was not quite as significant from the perspective of a, of a major armed force like, like the Russian military. But it does, as I say, go... It is also worth emphasising that the Russians also struggled, frankly, in the opening phase of their intervention in Syria, even despite the fact that the challenge they were facing was, uh, you know, relative, it should have been relatively manageable. When they intervened, it was primarily an aerial intervention from the sky. And no question, the campaign of, frankly, scorched earth airstrikes and some missile strikes, you know, had an impact on the battlefield in terms of freezing front lines, but it certainly didn't show an immediate effect in terms of reversing the regime's significant losses on the ground for quite some time. Now, that was mostly because the Syrian regime itself on the ground proved largely incapable of taking advantage of that Russian aerial intervention. Um, But the Russians had to adapt. They adapted in a whole number of ways. One of them was that they just simply sustained a scorched earth aerial campaign for a long period of time. Over 90% of it for the first nine months focused almost explicitly on the Free Syrian Army and groups that the United States and European allies had been backing for several years prior to that. It wasn't a counter-terrorism intervention as it was initially framed. But I I would say, you know, there's lots of lessons to talk about, and I could go on about this for a long time, but I would say the biggest one they learned was that it was possible to fuse together or combine sort of military brutality with diplomatic, geopolitical maneuverability, flexibility. What do I mean by saying that? I think the best example would be when it became clear that the Syrian regime's ground forces and Russia's air force combined was incapable of challenging and rolling back the kind of collective Syrian opposition in every corner of the country simultaneously. The Russians did what I think they haven't done in Ukraine, which was to sort of take a breath and acknowledge and accept that that fact and adapt in, an, in another direction. And what they did was they pivoted towards diplomacy. They kind of inserted themselves into discussions that were going on, particularly within the United Nations, and started talking about phrases like de-escalation, deconfliction, ceasefires, uh, a language that definitely was not translated in terms of Russia's activities militarily in Syria. That came at a time when the international community, quite frankly, didn't want to see any more escalation in Syria. So it was kind of welcome language, but it was also a ruse. So Russia managed to convince the international community to accept de-escalation zones all across Syria, which were meant to, on paper, freeze the conflict, freeze the conflict lines. But in actual fact, they were little more than a trick to give the Syrian regime the breathing space and the time 
to then pick out each de-escalation zone one at, one by one. And they did so very successfully through 2018. And the international community by that time stood back and didn't do anything. So the adaptation was to fuse the military brutality with a kind of diplomatic cleverness and to take advantage of the fact that the international community rarely has had it in it to go on these things for the long haul. Russia is having a lot of diplomatic troubles at the moment even with nations that were always seen as very close to Moscow. Countries like Armenia are watching Russia prioritize the fighting in Ukraine over keeping their promises to defend Armenia from aggression. So with Russia diverting more and more resources away from Syria and into the Ukrainian theater, how is the opinion of Russia changing within Damascus? Yeah, so I mean, I don't think we've seen any indications from Damascus of any kind of doubt in the relationship with the Russians. Before Russia invaded Ukraine, there have been periods of time where I think it was visible that Russia was kind of assuming a position of advantage vis-a-vis Iran and their respective relationships with Damascus. There's a competition between Iran and Russia, and Russia was was more or less always the actor that that had the visible advantage in that competitive relationship. And there's one main reason for that, and that is because historically inside Syria, And inside the regime, there has been a much deeper and more sustained and more, I would say, trustworthy relationship with Moscow than there has been with Tehran. And that that kind of deeper history um, and relative level of trust um, in Moscow, I think, has sustained itself through this more challenging period um, uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. We haven't really seen any meaningful change in terms of Russia's military capabilities, its deployments, or its military activities in Syria since the war in Ukraine. And even despite the strains that the war in Ukraine has put on the Russian military, Russian air sorties remain at the same level. Their troop deployments on the ground are are on the same numbers. Their activities, patrols, uh, and operations on the ground remain uh, exactly the same as they were before the invasion. So, so long as that remains the case, I think there's little reason for Damascus to begin to to question that relationship, even if even if they ever did. And then, of course, beyond that, there's the kind of economic um, angle as to whether or not Russia will continue to be capable of kind of bailing out the Syrian economy, uh, providing either uh, cheap or free uh, fuel and and credits to Damascus to bail it out of the very deep uh, economic crisis that that Syria is is experiencing right now. And I would say we haven't yet seen a clear indication that Russia is is or won't be capable of continuing to fill that gap. Uh, but that's certainly possible. I think that would be um, probably the more likely or, or, or more potentially likely scenario to play out. But even then, as I say, you know, the Syrian regime doesn't, it doesn't have very many allies out there uh, right now. Um, and Russia is, of course, the, the key one. Uh, it's got the UN Security Council seat, which continues to offer uh, the potential for vetoes. And that is of enormous importance uh, for Damascus. There's no other government out there other than China who could offer that same kind of, uh, of relationship. And quite frankly, China has, has long treated the Syrian crisis kind of at arm's length for a whole host of reasons. So I don't see the relationship fundamentally changing uh, anytime soon for, for all of those reasons. If the Russians are forced to pull more troops out of Syria, do you think we're likely to see Iran fill that power vacuum and put their own troops on the battlefield here? I think there may be an argument to say that Iran has attempted 
to muscle itself in more assertively into some political and security conversations inside Damascus. But I think, frankly, it's still struggling to compete with what I described earlier, which is that deeper, more trustworthy relationship that Syrians have traditionally had uh, with the Russians. There's also been some uh, argument claiming arguments claiming that Iran has um, asserted itself uh, more forcefully and in a to a greater scale in parts of northwestern and northeastern and eastern Syria over the last twelve months, and claims that that has been in reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But those trends, the the militias involved in those uh, kind of in, th- those increasing assertiveness in both of those corners of the country, kind of seeds um, or the roots of of that. Uh, began way before the invasion of Ukraine. So if anything, I think what we've seen there, both in the Northwest and particularly in the Northeast, and in Hasake and Kamishli, um, and to an extent in, in Dirazor in Eastern Syria, is more or less a continuation of what we had seen develop before the war in Ukraine. The talks going on around Syria right now are between Ankara, Moscow and Damascus, and Washington frankly just isn't there. Is this a sign that the US really doesn't have a strong position on this conflict anymore? It's long been the case that the US government has wanted to deal with Syria at an arm's length uh, and to pers- and to see Syria as a crisis that we want at best to be contained. I think there has long been a kind of resignation um, to the idea that the Syrian crisis is never going to be fundamentally resolved. And so in that case, in that sense, a, a policy of containment is the sort of least worst option on the table. Uh, and I think the Biden administration has very much pursued that. In that sense, there's very little that the US government can do to truly and genuinely deter attempts by some actors in the region to re-engage and or normalize the Assad regime. Um, but similarly so, there's very little we can really do to prevent the Turks um, from exploring these conversations that we've seen uh, sort of develop over the last few weeks. I don't think the fact that the conversations are happening is all that surprising. Um, of course, the Turkish, with the Turkish elections coming up and with the, the, the main opposition in Turkey being even more supportive of the idea of, of, of re-engaging and normalising with the Assad regime, it's no surprise that, that Erdogan and the AK party have felt the need to, to, to do so or attempt to do so themselves. Um, but I really do think within this whole conversation or within this whole issue, it's really important to remember and to acknowledge that the core issues that define the hostility between Turkey and Syria or Turkey and, and Damascus, those core issues have no clear resolution. Uh, and the demands being made respectively by Damascus and by Ankara, there's no way of squaring those circles the idea, in my mind at least, that Turkish troops will completely vacate northwestern Syria in exchange for some Syrian regime offensive against the SDF or opening up the borders and allowing Turkey to intervene, I just don't see how that how that works. I mean, at the crux of all of this, uh, Turkey has two, I would say, kind of primary national security concerns when it comes to Syria. One, of course, is the PKK and what it frames as a counterterrorism uh, concern. And the other one is refugees. And I think we've very clearly seen in terms of Turkish domestic politics that the refugee issue, the Syrian refugee issue, 
um, is one that has to be on the table and has to be presented as a priority. But the idea that Turkish troops leaving northwestern Syria is going to see three and a half million Syrians suddenly return to northern Syria is, you know, it's, it's not only insane, it is totally illogical. Uh, I mean, it runs contrary to the very kind of defining facts that we know about why those refugees are in Turkey for the, in the first place. No Syrian refugee is going to go back to a territory in Syria controlled by the regime if they're currently in Turkey. Um, but on a very practical level, the idea of an actual normalized relationship between Turkey and, and Syria, I still think is years off. Um, there's just no squaring the circles that define why those two actors are hostile uh, today. And so as a result of that, I think we will continue to see these conversations happen in the lead up to the election. But then there will be some kind of quote unquote epiphany moment where the Turks suddenly and very unexpectedly realize that these conversations aren't going anywhere and we'll be back to the status quo. Um, I, I've, I would be really amazed if we don't see that happen. Well, what about the other way around? There were rumors a while back circulating on Russian TV and Russian language telegram channels that Syria would be sending 15,000 battle-hardened fighters to Ukraine to assist the Russian forces. Now, 15,000 is obviously a very fanciful number, but do you think we'd see some Syrian fighters being recruited to fight on behalf of Russia in Ukraine? I don't put a lot of credibility in them, frankly. I think I think to an extent it was a kind of PR exercise. I think to a large extent it was actually driven mostly by Syrians and uh, a number of sort of pro-regime militias and military units who are particularly close to the Russians. And it was driven by them because they wanted to sort of pledge their loyalty and support to Russia, uh, mostly, I think, for self-interested reasons. But when you dug under the surface, you didn't find much more than... Facebook posts by militiamen calling for recruits and a number of alleged posters that had been stuck up in various areas of the country calling for people to, you know, call up cell phone A in order to, um, you know, pledge yourself as a potential recruit um, for Russia's war in Ukraine. But little, if anything, ever actually developed beyond that. Um, lots and lots of rumours, but mostly from opposition sources, which therefore I don't think in this case you give a great deal of credibility to. 15,000 would have been an absolutely wild uh, number, and I think Russia would have been have to have been in a very, very desperate situation to follow through with that. You know, on a very practical level, the war that Russia is fighting in right now is a dramatically different one than the war that Syrian troops have been fighting over the last 11 years. There's very little in the way of experience that pro-regime uh, fighters could bring with them to Ukraine that would add to Russia's capabilities on the ground. And that's, of course, not to mention the fact that they speak a totally different language and they come from a completely different culture. You know, it's one thing to see Syrians go fight in Libya, a whole nother one to see them going to fight in Ukraine. So if it ever happened, they'd be little more than cannon fodder. Um, but I just don't think that the that the Russians actually would see this as a particularly um, sort of favourable force multiplier and therefore an initiative worth much of an effort. My last question to you is, who do you think is in the driver's seat of the war in Syria? Who has the largest influence to steer this one way or the other? 
That's a great question, because, in large part because I, I, I'm not sure anyone is in the driving seat. I just think there are a number of different cars all driving the Syrian crisis forward. I mean, the crisis never ended. The wars, multiple, never ended. And every single war and front line is defined by a different conglomeration of actors with different priorities and, and different resources and different interests. I think the Russians have clearly sought to invest and double down on their use of um, diplomatic clout and diplomatic investment to try to take charge of the trajectory of the crisis. You know, it was at least a year or two now that Russian diplomats privately were already saying across the table that the military phase of the Syrian crisis was over. It's time to talk diplomacy. And I think this is what we're, you know, for the first real time, we're starting to see that take place now. I think the Russians are very clearly cognizant of the fact that flipping Turkey would fundamentally transform what the crisis looks like. Um, notwithstanding my very deep cynicism or scepticism that we're actually going to see that happen. But the Russians know that if they did manage to do that, it would fundamentally transform things into their favour. The idea of an opposition would be over, but it would also precipitate a spectacular crisis and a destabilization of northern Syria. So I, I don't see it necessarily happening, but the Russians have every reason to continue to push in that direction. And they also will continue to do so because in doing so, they're, they're isolating the United States and, uh, and its many allies uh, in Europe, part of the Middle East, uh, who want to see the crisis resolved through a negotiated, uh, negotiated settlement. And it, it is entirely right to say that seeing, you know, the Emirati foreign minister visiting Damascus as the Russians are mediating talks between Turkey and, Damas and Turkey and Damascus, you know, all these developments are happening whilst the United States is virtually an irrelevant actor. And that is largely because the US has, has, has decided to have this kind of minimalist containment policy on Syria. But it is also because we just don't have and we're choosing not to have the necessary leverage to change the dynamics. We could wake up tomorrow morning and President Biden could announce a major diplomatic a kind of offensive on Syria, an appointment of an actually, um, you know, kind of uh, a credible big name as a, as a special envoy to lead that effort in concert with allies in the Middle East and Europe and elsewhere. We do have it in ourselves to announce and to choose to do something like that, but we have chosen not to. And whilst that remains the case, uh, we will continue to see Russia in particular trying to chip away at the walls that prevent or deter re-engagement with the regime. And the more and the longer that that continues, the more those walls will continue to break down and eventually we'll be at a tipping point. But as I say, I still think we're some some way away from seeing a tipping point like that, but we're certainly moving towards it. I want to use a bit of an analogy here to drive this home. Imagine Russia as a house, and a house built on stilts. Not unusual in some parts of the world. And when people build their houses on stilts, they tend to put a few extra stilts on bits of the house that are usually heavier. Bathrooms, kitchens, etc. Until recently, Russia's house was still designed quite well. Yes, there's a lot of weight and pressure on the Russian army, but there's also a lot of support stilts, so they can afford to operate across theatres as diverse as Central Asia and the Caucasus, and even in the Middle East or Africa. But now Ukraine 
is taking a heavier and heavier toll on the Russians. And that part of the house is continuing to sink. So decisions have to be made by the homeowners to either let part of the house collapse or pull support beams from elsewhere to prop up the sinking, increasingly heavy parts of the house. And whilst pulling support beams from quiet sectors like Tajikistan or Syria seems like a good idea at the time, it makes that area more and more fragile. And you always have to remember that there are only so many stilts you can take away before the structure simply collapses. Whilst temporarily you can reassign troops from other fronts to fight in Ukraine, eventually those other fronts will become neglected and power vacuums begin to form. It was just a year ago that Russia was calling the shots here in Syria. But now 11 months on, Iran is nipping at their heels, Israel bombs the country with impunity, the Americans seem like they won't budge, and Turkey appears to no longer be looking for green lights from Moscow or Washington, but instead directing itself. 11 years of victories, coming undone after just one year of defeats. This is what Moscow is currently staring at. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week, our first show of 2023. Look, last year was a really big year for us. We went into 2022 with just under 4 million streams, and our goal we were working toward was to hopefully crack 8 million. But then all the craziness of 2022 happened, and thanks to all of the love and support we got from you guys, we entered 2023 having just crossed over the 20 million streams mark, absolutely demolishing our stretch goal of 8 million. It's a number that's frankly insane, and I cannot believe we're here already. So to everyone who found us in 2022, or told their friends about the show, or sat through 90-minute episodes of some of the most obscure subjects known to man, from myself and the team, I really just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. 2022 was a big year for us, but I go into 2023 hoping to make this one even bigger. You see, we know that a big part of last year's success comes from all of the content we put out which again, we over doubled the amount of content we put out in 2022 that we had from 2021. And I'm glad to say we're putting out even more content than 2022 in 2023. So if you want to stay up to date with all of the upcoming projects and content and everything else we have coming up this year, the best way to do that is to follow us on the various social medias. And you can find all of our links on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Mastodon, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Pod. Or if you can follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz. Oz is in Australia. Even now, this show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep this show going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, I want to thank Annie Kay, Kenneth Josbiak, Eric Showalter, Patrick, Thomas Rushvile, Joanna Cummings, Rowan Faherty, Maxine Lalanche, Michael Henson, and Stuart, who are the newest Patreons to sign up this fortnight. This show is only possible because of the support from listeners like this, whose contributions are the reason we can keep doing this. And I cannot thank each and every one of them enough. So if you like the show and you feel like you could spare a couple of dollars, we greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode on Russian operations in Syria is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The Battle for Syria by Christopher Phillips for a fantastic view on the dynamics of the Syrian civil war. The second is Putin's War in Syria by Anna Borshevskaya for a more Russian perspective of the war. And the third is Putin's Wars, from Chechnya to Ukraine, by Mark Galetti, looking more closely at how Russia conducts wars from a political perspective. I also want to give a big thanks to this week's guests, Joanna Cummings, Rich Altson, Vladimir von Vingelberg, and Charles Lister. What an amazing lineup to kick off this year. 
On top of that, I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Zavella, Genevieve Donald and May, Nate Ostilla, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lamb, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Tanner, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. The team is getting bigger, so we can put out more content and chase bigger stories. And that is thanks to you guys who keep tuning into the show. And I can't wait to show you what these guys can do. But for now, the red line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.